My name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab of the Molecular and Cellular Physiology Department here at Stanford, and welcome to NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. This week's guest is Dr. Chala Urulu, an assistant professor of cell biology at Duke University. Thanks for joining us today, Professor Urulu. Thank you. It's a pleasure for me. So if you do a PubMed search for C. Urulu, as we did to learn a bit about your background, you'll find very two different sets of papers. Some of them are by a Turkish clinician and another are from yourself. Is there any chance this is a relative of yours? So it turns out my surname is the most common surname in Turkey. <laughs> and uh, you probably, that's not just two sets of papers, it's probably a number of other aeroglues out there in Turkey. I see. So, um, I have no relation to the aeroglucies, though my mother is also a scientist. And uh, she is not a clinician, though. She is an engineer, and uh, she has been very active in also biotechnology and uh, bioengineering. So there are some papers from her on PubMed, that, uh, but her initial is I, so it's not the C other C aeroglue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's a very common surname. So my parents thought that they would give me a different first name that's not that common in Turkey and completely complicated to pronounce or write in English too. So uh, <laughs> I had a lot of uh, fun experiences about my, uh, my first name and my second name so far. <laughs> yes. Yeah, as we did before we got started, as I uh, murdered it several times before I <laughs> got it even close to right. It's not your fault, I can tell you that. <laughs> so was your mother a, a big influence in pushing you to be a scientist and to study biology in particular? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I grew up watching my mother working in her in her lab and, you know, going through. So I remember that she was at the last stages of her PhD. I think that was around the time I was six or seven years old and I remember you know spending a lot of the weekends in the lab with her and looking at her cool lab equipment and so on and she's a chemical engineer and she always you know took me to the university where she did her research which uh, she's still there and she's a professor there at Turkey in Middle East Technical University so for me research science doing experiments was you know, something that everybody did and was the coolest thing that one can possibly do. So I remember very well when I was a little kid at primary school, I thought everybody wanted to be a scientist <laughs> because that was the thing to be. And when I started, you know, blurting that, oh, I will be a scientist when I grow up, I remember this one of these boys in my class said, why are you so weird? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what's weird? What are you talking about? <laughs> this is like the coolest thing on earth. But those kind of comments didn't deter me from wanting to be a scientist. I always had an interest in biology. I loved living things. I loved nature as a child. So I wanted to really understand it. I also had another interest, uh, which was stars and everything to do with astronomy and astrophysics. So I had these two love, love for biology or love for physics and uh, a huge pressure from my mom and my dad who are both engineers to become an engineer at the same right. time. So yeah. I, my undergraduate is actually on chemical engineering. But after I graduated, I said, okay, 
I like engineering, I like physics and chemistry, but biology is such a new and fast-moving field. I really want to go into biology. And at that point, I switched to molecular biology and did a, a nice two-year master's again in Turkey in a different university and then had the opportunity to go to European Molecular Biology Laboratories in Heidelberg for my graduate work. Was that a big decision to go to Germany and were you looking all over the globe or? At that point, this was way back when, quite some time ago, at that point, usually the Turkish students tried to come to US for graduate school and Europe wasn't a big de destination. However, just right at around that time, Yambial sent some delegates to Turkey and they visited universities and I was introduced to this fantastic place to do science in an incredibly international environment. So when I went to EMBL, you know, we were a class of 50 graduate students and probably there were at least 15 to 20 different nationalities within our group. And that was an amazing richness for me, not just about science, but also about uh, understanding how the world is and how unifying science can be. Because trying to learn something about nature is such a primal thing. It doesn't matter where you come from. You all share that curiosity and you work together to get it. So it was a fantastic experience. So you can't pronounce each other's names, but you all know what a positive control is. So Yeah, I have. I had fun experiences about my name there too. Yeah. So you did your graduate work, as you said, in Heidelberg with Imgard Sinning, where you yes. studied metabotropic glutamate receptors, or MGLUARs. Yes. And in particular, you developed a technique for expressing and then purifying these receptors in the photoreceptor cells of Drosophila eyes. Could you explain why you would go to the trouble of figuring out how to do this, and then what some of the challenges were to get it working? Yeah, it was a crazy fun project, yes. It was a crazy project, but it was fun to do at the end. So until around the mid part of my graduate, work, it was impossible to get structures from GPCRs or seven transmembrane helix proteins. And uh, one of the aims of Sinning Lab was to find ways to purify and crystallize these, you know, relatively difficult to purify and crystallize proteins. So one thing that tracked them uh, at one point, EMBL, I should say EMBL, used to be and probably still is was a mecca for working with drosophila so there were there were a lot of drosophila scientists a lot of people coming in and presenting their research and during one of these talks irmi my pg supervisor at the time so that these rhabdomeres of the photoreceptors in the fly eye are loaded with membranes that harbor incredible amounts of rhodopsin so rhodopsin is the simplest form of a G protein coupled receptor, GPCR. And she had this cool idea, why can't we switch the rhodopsin with a different GPCR and then make this transgenic fly and just force the eye to produce really large quantities of a receptor. And all she needed was a crazy enough student that would go along with this idea, I think. And that turned out to be me. I see. So I'm not a structural biologist, so my understanding of the troubles of making crystals is rather basic. But is the basic idea that you want to have as much protein as you possibly can so you can do as many purification steps as you possibly can and still end up with something enough to make a crystal at the end? Yes, you need high quantities of a protein, which is a huge bottleneck in GPCRs. And you want to have it really purified 
well purified. To get high quantities of something and that's located in a membrane, you need an expression system where the system in itself has some characteristics that would enable it to produce this complicated protein. So in the eye, rhodopsin is made in incredibly high quantities. So these eye, the photoreceptor cells of the eyes are probably the best place to express a protein that is similar to rhodopsin. And the fly genetics is awesome because you can drive expression of any kind of protein in any cell of your choice because there are all these different drivers and things that you can use. So we used that technique and I ended up making big fly cultures, let's call it, or not cultures, but big batches of flies. So I had like these huge cages which were filled with millions and millions of flies and somebody had to take their eyes off. So that was another fun experience. <laughs> if you have time, I can tell you about that. <laughs> so, wait, wait, yeah, so, so you have a giant bucket of flies and you just have to take them one by one and cut their eyes off? No, you don't do okay. that. But <laughs> you flash freeze them in liquid nitrogen and shake them their heads fall off and then you can use sieves to differentiate between different body parts. So the abdomen is very large, so it will be on the top sieve. Mm -hmm. The head is second largest, so it will be in the middle sieve. And then all the rest of the body, like the wings and the feet and so on, will be in the bottom sieve. So you have this nice part partitioning. So that was fortunate that I didn't need to cut them one by one. <laughs> so it's kind of like fly baking or something. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's interesting. But, you know, some nice results came out of it, and which also triggered my interest in neurobiology in general. So we never could get crystals out of it, but we were able to get really high quantities of the protein. And then uh, later I discovered that this protein that was made, uh, this was a metabotropic glutamate receptor, the glutamate receptors that was purified from the fly eye had a very low affinity to glutamate compared to the same receptor purified from a cell culture type of cell. And I had to think about this quite a lot and it was a eureka moment. I realized that the cholesterol content of the membranes in both cell types was really different and that difference made the difference. So the metabotropic glutamate receptors required to have a sterile that's embedded within their structure, which then provided a, a higher affinity for glutamate. And we showed that that was because of the lipid raft association of this receptor. Did you first think that you just made some broken MGLUARs? Uh, yeah, I mean, for a long time, I thought I was doing something wrong because, you know, I was just a young PhD student uh, and I thought, oh, what am I doing wrong? Why is it not having the correct affinity? And I think that's a lesson to take is that sometimes it's not something you're doing wrong, it's something you're missing. So I had to think very carefully about it and try to figure out what was the missing thing. And then I figured out it was cholesterol. So that was one of those nice Eureka moments of anyone should have in their PhD, I think. And sometimes I get stuck with a research question and I think what is the cholesterol here like what am I missing and, uh, and that helped helped me for sure during my postdoc as well so as you mentioned you developed an interest in neuroscience and you came here to Stanford and did a postdoc with Ben Barris yes. who studied the role of glia in synapse formation and function so it was this 
thinking about affinity of receptors that made you want to study glia? Or, I mean, it seems on, on the surface to be a really big jump. So there was a paper that just came out around that time, a nice review that was associated with it, written by Ben Barris and Stephen Smith, actually. And uh, the paper was about glia secreting or astrocytes secreting cholesterol and neurons taking in this cholesterol and that affecting their synaptic connections. That sort of helped me to put a nice physiological perspective to all my findings because this was a system where cholesterol could be utilized as a means to change properties of membrane proteins in the neighboring cells. And in general, I had a lot of interest in, you know, cell surface receptors and so on. So I wrote to Ben and I said, would you be interested in having me as a postdoc? And he said, wow, that's such a great PhD story, but I would not work on cholesterol because that's what my previous postdoctoral associate is working. Uh, if you want to work on something else, just let me know. And I'm like, wow, that's such a nice thing to do and not to compete with your own previous postdoc. So I said, well, I can work on something else. I've worked on cholesterol enough and move on to the next target. Then I had five years of amazing time at Stanford and uh, started working with the most wonderful cells in the world, the astrocytes. <laughs> You became a convert. Yes. So in 2005, the Barris lab identified a molecule called thrombospondin, which is secreted by astrocytes and plays an important role in the formation of excitatory synapses. So you, while you were in lab, were part of a team to try to find the receptor for this molecule. So how did you go about looking for it? Yeah, the thrombospondin paper was published in 2005. But when I joined the lab in 2003, we already knew about thrombospondin back then. So I immediately got into trying to figure out and tease out its molecular mechanism and it took really a long time uh, and the main reason for that is when we first started we thought maybe one of the already known thrombospondin receptors was mediating this function and I ruled out one by one you know many of these receptors that were previously shown to be thrombospondin receptor in some other cell type or some other process. And it slowly became apparent that the effect of thrombospondin was mediated by a region that was not previously assigned to any receptor. So I had to go ahead and look for a new you know, receptor for it. And I tried a few different methods, but it was more of a sitting down, thinking about it, and you know, looking at the literature, what's known about this domain of thrombospondin that I identified to be synaptogenic and how can I link it to any other receptor that's out there. So that was the, the second Eureka moment that, you know, was really fundamental in my research, I think. When I noticed that a paper on one of the thrombospondins showed that this domain interacted with a von Wildebrand factor A domain from an integrin, but integrins were the usual suspects as a TSP receptor. So I worked on integrins already for years and I've always come up as negative, not really playing a role in synaptogenesis, in the synaptogenesis that we study. So just to be clear, you took each of the receptors that you were hoping was the target and then... And then used the knockouts or knockdowns and so on, or inhibiting antibodies and, and ruled those out. But then I said, okay, maybe it's not the integrin, but it's that domain within the integrin that could be shared by another cell surface protein. And when I went down on the list of proteins that contain this domain, I came across with this very interesting protein known as calcium channel subunit alpha 2 delta. And what was very interesting about this protein is that it was initially identified as 
the calcium channels up in it. But it is also a receptor for uh, very commonly used neuropathic pain and epilepsy drugs, neurontin and pregabalin. So, you know, it was suggesting maybe that these drugs had something to do with calcium channel function or mechanism was through calcium channels. However, people have studied for a long time whether these drugs do something to the calcium channel kinetics and nobody really found anything that was uh, suggesting that. So I thought, oh, what if this drug did something to synaptogenesis? And after I did the experiment of testing whether drugs interfere with TSP-induced synaptogenesis, to my delight, I found a very strong effect of gobapantin on this process. And I couldn't sleep a few weeks, I would say, after I found that. I said, oh, wow, this really must be the receptor for thrombospondin. So that was a nice, fortunate catch on our part. So the skeptic would say, well, if the alpha-2 delta receptor is necessary for synapse formation, you know, it, it's blocking this thrombospondin-mediated synapse formation, but that doesn't mean it has to be the receptor. So what did you what did you have to do to really show that it was the receptor? We have to do a lot of things. So we knocked it out or overexpressed it, or also shown that gabapentin blocks the interaction between the thrombospondin and alpha-2 delta-1. Uh, there were a lot of skeptics for sure, so we had to do a lot of experiments to provide that. The siRNA knockdown of alpha to delta was really helpful. Uh, at that time, there were no knockouts available. Uh, luckily, we now have the knockouts. And the knockdown of alpha to delta completely stops and diminishes all TSP induced synaptogenesis. The other thing was we had access to a mouse which was overexpressing alpha to delta. In this mice, we found there was a very uh, significant increase in the developmental formation of synapses. So that was also a nice indication this receptor had anything to do with uh, synapse formation. So as we've already alluded to, there is a drug called gabapentin, which blocks the binding of thrombospondin to the alpha-2 delta receptor. And this is a drug that is used to treat epilepsy. So do you think that what you learned really changes the way that one thinks about how this drug was working in the brain? It helps us to understand that there may be at least a long-term you know, mechanism for this drug to be functioning in diseases like epilepsy or neuropathic pain. Since it has the ability to block formation of new synapses, it might be at least in part working by blocking formation of maladaptive circuits that are induced by seizures or that are induced by injury that leads to neuropathic pain. The other thing that excites me most about this possibility is that can we use this drug in a fashion that we give it to people that are in the risk of developing epilepsy or in the risk of developing neuropathic pain and inhibit the formation of wrong circuits. And then these drugs may be more effective because they're not that effective for epilepsy. They are more effective for neuropathic pain. But if there is a component of these diseases that requires this formation of wrong circuits, and there are a lot of indications in the literature on that, then it might be helpful to find the critical periods where we can block this interaction and not impair repair, because maybe this interaction is required for some sort of repair, but eliminate the maladaptive formation of circuits. Hmm, interesting. So 
For the last five years or so, you've had your own lab at Duke. What's been some of the most unexpected challenges you've faced as a young PI? Well, there are always challenges. The first two, three years were uh, difficult in the sense that I was finding the right mixture of people for my lab and, uh, you know, getting the right amount of funding for my lab. So those are the biggest challenges. The initial challenge was to change in role. So before I was one of the guys in the lab and then all of a sudden I was in my office and no longer one of the people in the lab. So it felt a little lonely, but I enjoy it very much right now. I think this is a great time. We've gone through those periods and now we have what we need in terms of people and uh, we can always have more funding that I'm definitely <laughs> going to say that we have enough, but we're enjoying what we do. We're enjoying the communication and so on. Those challenges are gone. I think, uh, you know, there are always challenges, but I think the fun and the pleasures of having a lab outweighs greatly the challenges and that's why we keep doing this. <laughs> well, that, that was my next question. What are some of the things that you enjoyed that you maybe didn't expect that you would enjoy as a PI? I didn't have like very set expectations about how it was going to be when I had my lab. I thought, I don't know what I thought actually, I just cannot remember. But what I enjoy right now is to discuss you know, science with my students. Uh, it's easier to think about experiments when you are not the primary person that's <laughs> going to do it. So I, I, I felt that I became more creative and free thinking because I don't have to personally do those experiments. <laughs> the biggest joy for me is when I see that they do something, it's just so amazing that, you know, I couldn't have thought about it or do it myself and they are able to do it and think about it. That's, I think... When they do something that I cannot think of, that's the most exciting thing for me. Because that shows me that my group will be better than just me alone. It's a combination of all of our talents and all of our intellects. And I really enjoy that process. I mean, it's fun. So finally, could you just give us a brief teaser for what you plan to talk about when you come to Stanford? So my postdoctoral work was on understanding the molecular mechanism, which is like the receptor for thrombospondin and how that induces synapse formation. For the last five years in my own lab, we've also identified two other astrocyte secreted proteins. These are called Heaven and Spark. And these proteins are very similar to each other. Heaven induces synapse formation and synapse maturation, whereas Spark is an antagonist of Heaven. So it does the opposite. And we recently identified the receptors for heaven in its role in synapse formation and maturation. And I'm going to talk about these receptors, which are, I think, is an interesting story. So heaven works in a way that's very different than thrombospondin and induces synaptic adhesions in a very different manner. So that's going to be what I'm going to talk about. Oh, great. We'll look forward to it. So in closing, we like to ask a series of short answer questions. So if you could go back in time and talk to yourself in particular as a graduate student as you were sieving those many many thousands of flyheads what advice would you give yourself i would say stop worrying about you know what's gonna happen just enjoy the moment because as long as you work hard and do good science everything's going to be all right great answer and second if i ask you what the first experiment that you ever did was what pops into your head oh wow like in, in school or, or even at home? Because I remember yeah, even, even at a home. lot of detergents and bleaches and stuff and causing huge problems. Uh, 
<laughs> mixed random chemicals and yeah i mean i liked experimenting with chemicals at home which were probably not very good for me or you know <laughs> my health i experimented on some fish that i could see or some other stuff by looking dissecting and checking out <laughs> what was inside i was really into biology so i i did a little project in high school in a microbiology lab and uh, they were showing me how to plate bacteria as a bacteria loan onto plates. I sneezed, and a few days later, <laughs> there were a lot of different interesting bacteria on that <laughs> plates. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember like the very, very, very first one, but I remember mixing a lot of cleaning products to each other and <laughs> causing strange fumes that weren't really indeed, good. Indeed, yeah. And finally, what is your favorite Ben Barris story? Oh, wow. Well, Ben is such a fun person, so there are a lot of stories. Oh, God. Can I say that's going to be not inappropriate? <laughs> he mixes people's names to each other. So when I joined his lab, my name being the way it is, it's a very challenging name, he called me Kagala many times, even after like six months of, you know, being in the lab. So I felt very bad that, you know, he wasn't remembering who I was or I thought like it was specific to me. But at that time, I overlapped with Karen Christofferson, who did a postdoctoral fellowship with him as well and was uh, one of the lead authors on the thrombosponin paper. So Karen had been in the lab for over five years, I think. And one day I was in the band's office and he turned to me and said, you know, and this was like really quite a number of years after I joined the lab. So he said, you know, Anke in my lab discovered thrombospondin. And I'm like, Anke? <laughs> so he actually mixed Karen's name even after all those years as well. <laughs> so I remember feeling, oh, maybe it is normal to mix names. <laughs> it's not just my name. But now in my own lab, I mix everyone's name to each other, just do exactly the same. And now I understand him so much better because <laughs> I have so many things that I have to think about. And sometimes the names just fall down from the cracks. It's not, not because I don't pay attention. So he remembered everyone's project very well. I can tell you that. And that alone is a huge accomplishment. So... <laughs> names sometimes can be mixed yeah the band stories yeah one of the things we did i think that was fun was also one halloween we printed out 2025 pictures of band's face and we all put it on as a mask <laughs> and that was the day of our lab meeting so he entered the room and all of us had this this uh, mask <laughs> And I think it freaked him out a little bit because it looks kind of weird. So I have a nice picture of that too. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. That's funny. Well, thanks for speaking with us today, Dr. Ulu. It was a pleasure for me. Thank you, Forrest. And thank you all for listening. We'll hope you join us next week when our guest will be Mark Freeman, an assistant professor of neurobiology at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. NeuroTalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senor and myself. For more information about NeuroTalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.neuroblog.stanford.edu.